from Kirkco Media. Welcome to Medicine, We're Still Practicing. I'm Bill Curtis, and today we have quite a show. First of all, I'm really excited to introduce Janice O'Leary, the executive editor at Rob Report. As a matter of fact, she built the Rob Report Health and Wellness Division. Janice, nice to have you here. Thanks for having me. Of course, my co-host of Medicine We're Still Practicing, the triple board certified doctor of internal medicine, pulmonary disease, and critical care, my very good friend, Dr. Stephen Tabak. How are you doing, Stephen? Doing okay. Nice to see you. Nice to be here. And now our special guest, Dr. Walter Longo, originally planned to be a rock musician. But luckily for us, he became an international rock star doctor in the field of longevity and nutrition. Walter is a professor and director of gerontology and biological sciences at the Longevity Institute at the University of Southern California. And he's also the director of longevity and cancer programs at the Institute of Molecular Oncology in Milan, Italy. A little over a year ago, Time magazine named Dr. Longo one of the 50 most influential people in healthcare for his work on 42 international clinical studies and groundbreaking research on the fasting-mimicking diets, a way to rid your body of, well, mutated cells while rejuvenating our healthy ones. He's the creator of the five-day fasting-mimicking diet and the author of the international best-selling book, The Longevity Diet. I was 19, I think, when I started working on uh, aging. And uh, at the time, I was a music student in Texas, University of North Texas, a famous uh, jazz school. Obviously, it was in my head all along because I did not think about what I had to do. I said, I have to study aging. And I always thought, what an incredible challenge, both scientifically, but I also thought, why isn't every doctor working on aging? It seems to me like that's where the problem is. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I've, I have to say, beside the years, the very early years, I, I've always worked on this. That's, um, that's all I've ever done. Because yeah. I had read about you that you had initially wanted to be a rock star. I started the same way. My, my mm-hmm. initial thought was to be a rock star. And then I realized that I was lacking one key ingredient, and that was talent. Uh, so I quickly <laughs> switched to something that I felt I could do uh, better. And are you still involved in music? I'm a little bit uh, more now, I think, um, in the uh, you know fundraising level. So we're thinking of doing some some concerts or something like that to to raise money for research. Yeah. So I, I have always uh, worked on aging, and since the early '90s, I was lucky enough to be a student of Roy Walford at UCLA. He was a a pathologist there, and uh, he was my first mentor. And he was at the time the uh, the world. Uh, um, most well-known person working on uh, calorie restriction and the longevity, and uh, so I followed up on his uh, on his work, and and uh, so for the past uh, 27 years, uh, we've been uh, focusing on how to take this old idea of calorie restriction and make it uh, uh, make it a newer idea uh, that can be brought to the clinics. Uh, all over the world. So, so Dr. Longo, you've been looking into various diseases that are related to aging, um, that I guess are anti-longevity, um, diseases such as cancer and autoimmunity and cardiovascular disease, obesity, and how these diseases 
might be affected and possibly even treated with a modification of diet um, and uh, with intermittent fasting. Yes. So what we're really focusing on is um, what I call the longevity program. And and, and so a mouse um, has a longevity program that is about two and a half years long. Um, and the first, let's say By one... By that you mean it's lifespan. Well, the lifespan is, is two, and, two and a half years, uh, but uh, they say the health span is maybe one and a half years. The mice start developing cancer maybe after one and a half years out of the two and a half years lifespan. So then the idea is why is it that um, people don't get cancer in most cases until they're 40 or 50 or older? Uh, so there is clearly um, the, the, the possibility of getting cancer is under the control of this program. So what we're really talking about here are cells that have kind of an aging problem. Yeah, that's what we're going after. We're going after the, the fundamental uh, changes in cells uh, and in the collection of cells that eventually will uh, lead to dysfunction. What is the diet that you are proposing that has been shown to have these immune modulating effects and the longevity? Well, you know, let me just interrupt for a second here. Uh, you know, I think we're talking about two different kinds of diets. There's one, there's the um, intermittent diet that you would do three times a year, optimally. Um, but then there's your daily diet. So can you comment on each of those? We did an epidemiological study uh, using the CDC da database a few years ago where we showed that uh, Americans that ate the highest level of proteins um, they had uh, about a 75% increased risk of, the, of overall mortality and about a three to four-fold increased risk for developing cancer um, compared to those that had the lowest protein intake. So this is about, you know, what, how do you eat every day? Um, and um, now this was true only up to age 65. So if you, when, when the CDC asked the question to 80-year-olds, uh, that was no longer true. In fact, the people who were 80-year-old were reporting having a low protein intake. They did not do very well. Uh, so that you know, and this is really important that uh, to understand that this is not. We we like to have simple uh, answers like low protein, high protein. This is good. This is bad. It doesn't work like that. It's a complex environment. You just have to learn how to navigate it. And and it's not. You know, once you learn and you have the right physician or, 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 or uh, dietitian helping you, I think it's, it's fairly straightforward to follow. But isn't so, there a lot of data that says that a high-fat diet has an increased risk of colon cancer and breast cancer? Um, high animal fats and high protein seems to be uh, both associated with increased uh, mortality, increased risk for cancer, increased risk for cardiovascular disease. The ideal everyday diet seems to be a fish plus, plus vegan uh, diet um, that is, you know, high nourishment and, and low protein. Um, then the fasting-making diet. The fasting-making diet is really something very different, and it's not even intermittent in nature. Can you describe the, the intricacies of the fasting-mimicking diet? What does it entail? Yeah, so the, the fasting-making diet is a, is a low-sugar, uh, high-fat, good-fats, uh, low-protein, uh, calorie-restricted diet. And, uh, good fats, by that you mean omega-3 versus omega-6? Or what, uh, what are you referring to when no, you say no, good fats? I, good fats, I, I refer to uh, the type of fats that are associated with longevity uh, and health span extension. So the nuts, the olive oil. They're plant-based. Um, 
plant-based, but of a certain kind that, that, that uh, is, uh, for example, avocado has in thus far not been associated with longevity extension, uh, but uh, nuts have, and so has olive oil. Uh, so those, yeah, that's what we're focusing on, the, the ones that provide the fats, the certain type of fats, but also that are being consistently associated with uh, higher health status and longevity. And what about carbs? Is the diet um, high or low in carbs? It, it's relatively high in carbs. They're very low sugar, but relatively high in carbs, mostly coming from vegetables, uh, no fruit. Um, and the idea um, is to... Um, we could get more of an effect, we believe, that uh, we, we are getting right now by having a lower-carb diet, so make it more ketogenic, but we don't want to do that. And the, uh, uh, the reason for that is that we do not want to take a chance on what will happen if we alternate this low-carb, high-carb, low-carb, high-carb for, say, hundreds of times in somebody's life. We rather have a little bit smaller effect, but not risking um, the, the potential problems that might uh, come up uh, from this alternation, low carb, high carb. What type of problems for people who get on and off a low carb diet? Yeah, the low carb diet, I think a lot of wishful thinking. Uh, if you look at the data, I never met a centenarian that was on a low carb diet, and I met lo- lots of centenarians. In the long run, people on a low carb diet live shorter. For example, Lancet, the new meta analysis that came out, showed that it, it, you're better off being an 80% carbohydrate diet than on a low-carb diet for lifespan. And, uh, and those that live the most were on about 60% uh, carbohydrate diet. So, and this is not... Bring on the Carbohydrate diet, unfortunately, <laughs> you're not talking about bagels and rye bread, are you? Yes, we are. You are? Yeah, of course, yeah. So, so, but I not mean, donuts, because <laughs> there's sugar in there. We're talking about, uh, um, you know, a, in general. Uh, now, of course, then, um, if you have lots of starches that you just described... Uh, that's not so good, you know, and the ideal, if you look at the Okinawans or the southern Italians that uh, reached record longevity, they did not have a ton of starches, uh, you know, bread and, and pasta. They, they had, you know, a good amount of it, but um, they would eat big dishes that were made of legumes and lots of vegetables. They were poor. And lots of these things were grown in, in the backyard. Right. They we, for, limited- we forget that vegetables are a carb. Right? Vegetables are carbohydrates. Yeah, vegetables are carbs. And that's the best source of carbs, right? So, for example, the Okinawans, 70% of the calories historically, the ones that now are 100 and 110, they used to eat 70% of the, the calories came from uh, sweet potatoes, purple sweet potatoes. That was their diet. People think, oh, lots of rice. 70% of their diet. Yeah, they were poor. That's what they were used They used to be able to grow in the, on, the, on the island. And that's what they ate all the time. And if you look at the southern Italians, for example, in, in my parents' town, it's got record longevity. They had these green beans. These, uh, uh, we call it pasta in Vianea. So you have a little bit of pasta and tons of these green beans uh, and, and the vegetables that they could sort of grab and put together. What about rice? Is there a difference between processed rice, uh, whole grain rice, or is rice not really considered one of the good carbs? Rice is perfectly fine. is is an excellent carb, um, but in limit within the limits, right? So, eating rice is pretty much like eating sugar if it's white rice, and that's that's okay. Believe it or not, it's okay if you if you have this in a limited quantity. It's not okay if, like most people, you have too much of it. And then uh, then you're setting yourself up for uh, this insulin resistance. 
Now, I see you're very thin. Are you adhering to your own uh, tenets here, or have you experimented with yourself and your own diet? Before I, I, I um, uh, joined the uh, Roy Walford Lab in, in 1992, I had a terrible diet, and uh, I have hypertension in the family, high cholesterol. I had it all. You know? So by, by age 30, I had high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and, and so, but I happened to be in Roy Walford's lab, and, uh, and he was writing books. He had one, I think it was called The 120-Year Diet. Yeah, so I, I read these books, and then I changed my diet, and that was it. You know? So my blood pressure came back down to, to normal, and it's been normal since. My cholesterol came back down. So, yeah, so I was lucky enough uh, to be in the right place at the right time. And, uh, and since then, I've been, doing, uh, I've been following everything that I preach. So let's get, skip over to the diet you were talking about earlier today about three times a year, perhaps, venturing into something a little more drastic. I've tried this, and it's a product that uh, Dr. Longo developed, um, but he doesn't actually profit from, and it's called Prolon, and it's a five-day kind of meal kit that you get, and it starts off, I think, at 1,100 calories, and then it gets you down to around 700 calories per day just for five days. And um, I've tried you know, various kinds of things like this um, in the past, but none of them had any real clinical data backing it up. And this one seemed to have good data when I first looked at it, and I thought, okay, I'll try it. I enjoyed it, um, and I like the idea that if I can just do this three times a year for five days a piece, if that will help extend my lifespan, my healthy lifespan, then I'd be on board with so it. So t- tell us a little, Dr. Longo, about the philosophy behind going through this process a few times a year. Well, the philosophy really came from our cancer patients. I mean, our, our work with cancer patients, we started, uh, we were only fasting and uh, a USC, Norris Cancer Center. And uh, basically, uh, the patient said, we don't want to do water-only fasting when we have cancer. And the oncologist said, uh, we don't want our patients to do water-only fasting when they have cancer. Uh, and so the National Cancer Institute then funded uh, the fasting-mimicking diet. What's the difference between fasting and fast-mimicking? Yeah, fasting, most people would view as just water. Okay. The water-only fasting could be also effective, but at the same time, it puts the patient at risk for all kinds of problems: hypoglycemia, hypotension, uh, low uh, salts in the in, in the system, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so, the fasting mimicking diet gives us an opportunity to basically standardize the diet to make sure that the, the patient does not have these problems. Now, what, how many calories is there being consumed during a fasting-mimicking diet? Well, fasting-mimicking diet is, there are many versions. You know, we have a version for autoimmunities, uh, a version for Alzheimer, a version for cancer. So they, for var- ca- they vary in the clinical trials, but... Um, yeah, the cancer, for example, <clears throat> is four days. It's very low calorie. I think it starts about six, 700 calories and goes down to 300. We want to get in four days... Uh, and the reason for it is to really be adjustable to all the conditions that uh, the chemotherapy and other therapies are, are carried out. Um, and uh, the, the one for regular people is 1,100 calories on day one, going to uh, 750 to 800 calories on day two, three, four, five. Uh, the one for autoimmunities is seven days long, and it's similar to the one for regular people, but very different content. Uh, Alzheimer's is about 1,400 calories, day one, um, and then it goes uh, down to 
about 900, 950 calories. And so we were adjusting based on the age, the condition, the frailty, and many different needs. For healthy people, well, are you putting yourself through a fasting mimicking diet in some sort of cycle? Yeah, I, I do it twice a year. Twice so. a year. Yeah, I do it twice a year. Um, and and the reason for that is that I normally have a very good diet, this pescatarian diet, maybe fish a couple of times a week, and then just vegan the rest of the time. Um, so I, I think it's um, that's, that's about all I need to do. But you're uh, Italian. Do you still drink wine? I drink wine, yes. <laughs> how does wine that f- and coffee and how does that well, well, wine is in? vegan, right? I mean, there's there's no animal in, in wine. True, so. true. But it, it's it's definitely not uh, low sugar. No wine, wine. Uh, I mean, people. If you look at the meta analysis and um, alcohol consumption up to five con- uh, servings a week is actually either neutral or a little bit slightly positive on lifespan. So unless you have other risk factors for for uh, um, Diseases uh, for which alcohol is also a risk factor, then um, then you then alcohol is fine, you know, in, in within this this consumption limits. So we've been going back and forth a little bit between just normal healthy living diet and the idea of this intermittent healing kind of a solution. Yeah, and it's not intermittent, right? So this is why I, I want to stay away Sorry, from these words. Sorry, that's my so, language. Yeah, yeah I want to stay away from these words because, I mean, intermittent, lots of people think about these chronic interventions that you do every day, every second day, every three days. But the fasting making diet is really something called periodic and a need-to-do-it basis, right? So you may only need to do it uh, twice a year, um, but you may need to do it 12 times a year and not necessarily in an intermittent fashion. We see the doctor saying, you know, I've looked at your blood uh, results and your abdominal circumference, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going to put you on six cycles of this. I don't just envision this. This is already happening in 15 countries. I hope it becomes a lot more uh, common. Dr. Longo, I'm, I'm going to send us toward a very fast break. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Robert Ross, host of Cars That Matter. You might be wondering what makes a car matter, and I have a feeling you already know the answer. Some cars have changed history. Some you can hear a mile away. Some have lines that make your heart skip a beat. If a car has ever made you look twice, then I think you know the ones that matter. Join me as I speak with designers, collectors, and market experts about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. Cars That Matter, wherever you get your podcasts. So we're back with my co-host, Dr. Stephen Tabak and Janice O'Leary and Dr. Walter Longo. Dr. Longo, can we jump into your diet that you're exploring in so many different studies? How would a, a change in your caloric intake or a change in what you're eating actually affect the growth of a cancer? Not just the growth, also the survival. Um, the fasting and fasting-making diet alone is about as good as chemotherapy, that, but hardly or rarely it cures even a mouse, right, alone. Right? If you just do a cycle of chemo or a cycle of fasting, you almost never even cure a mouse. Now, you combine the chemo and the fasting, and now you're starting to see cancer-free survival, so mice that are cured. Um, so, yeah, so that's suggesting that that difficulties generated by the starvation environment for a cancer cell are there, but they're not sufficient to wipe them out. When you add the targeted intervention, chemo, immunotherapy, et cetera, et cetera, that's when you're starting to see 
a much bigger effect. So now, you know, soon enough we're going to be publishing the clinical trials on, on lots of this that I just mentioned. So it's a problem because it's very complex and it's a moving target. So there's not one set of recommendations you can make in general for the population or for a particular type of disease because it seems to be changing all the time. Yes, this is why I think the mistake has been I'm going to have the magic bullet, but uh, I only use the magic bullet and I wait and then I try another magic bullet and another one. And, uh, and that's very difficult. Even immunotherapy usually works only on a percentage of the, of the patients. I think the trick, uh, and it may not be, may not be a, a complete solution, but the trick is going to be hit the, the cancer with a targeted intervention, but also with a wide-acting intervention. Make the life of, a can- of all cancer cells very difficult by creating an extreme environment and then use the, the, the magic bullet uh, to do, um, you know, to put them in a situation where they cannot escape. It's very interesting and creative because when you think about it, chemotherapy kills off all cells. Right, even really, healthy ones. Right, it doesn't discriminate between healthy or unhealthy. Whereas if you use a diet-targeted form of therapy where the healthy cells actually are stimulated and benefited by it, but the cancer cells uh, in some way are being injured by it, you're doing exactly what the ideal process would be, and that is preserve the healthy and get rid of the unhealthy. Um, we talk about diet all the time. No, no, I know. This is what I was saying. The, the trouble is, and, and myself included, because I know what I'm supposed to be doing dietary-wise, but to actually implement it day-to-day, um, patients in particular, now there may be a certain segment of the population of physicians as well who may just reach for medication, but some of that is conditioned because of the fact that we have spoken countless times to our patients about the correct diet, but people have a hard time adhering to it. There are a lot of smart people out there who have a bagel every single day for breakfast. And it's, you know, not because they're, they want to defy their doctors or they want to bring on type 2 diabetes. They just like a bagel every morning and they don't want to really change that habit. So changing your habits on a daily basis, that's hard. Patients themselves would prefer a medication. Give me a pill so I can then go back and have, you know, my chocolate cream pie, you know, every night. The complaint is not so much that the doctor doesn't know that diet could change uh, the status of the patient. The complaint is more that there is not really a coordinated effort. For example, most doctors in medical school, they receive minimal training on nutrition, right? So it's also difficult for somebody that has never been trained on nutrition to intervene in a very forceful way on a patient because you've never been trained uh, in, in the setting. So I think that the medical schools, I'm, I'm going to visit Loma Linda in, in a few weeks, and, you know, there are some medical schools and, and hopefully soon enough, many medical schools that are going to move in that direction of having doctors that understand, you know, not just that diet is, is um, uh, the way to go, but also how do you get a patient to change the diet? But part of the problem, I think, clinically, and I'm not sure, you know, what the solution is at this juncture, is that there doesn't seem to be a consensus amongst the medical community as to what is the actual appropriate diet. Sure. I mean, and, and, I mean, I think there is much more of a consensus among the people that um, have been doing this for a long time, you know, and look like, like we do at longevity at, you know, what people eat uh, in areas of the world that are, that are, where there is record longevity. What about the epidemiological studies? What about the clinical studies? But even those, those who advocate a plant-based diet, they're actually very pro-fruits, not just vegetables. 
Whereas if you're talking about it's sort of a, a fasting mimicking diet, you were saying that really you shouldn't be using much of your carbs from fruits. It should be really almost entirely vegetables. No, no, I mean, let's not confuse the fasting mimicking diet with the diet, everyday diet. There are two completely different things. You know, fasting mimicking diet, you're going to do it two or three times a year. Everything else you're going to do every day of your life. Um, in the fruit, there's nothing wrong with the fruit. Um, the only complaint I have in my book about fruit is, is the idea that you can eat as much as you want, and it's okay, because fruit, it's going to have lots of sugar in it, and, and, and if you don't understand that you need to limit it, then that's not going to be so helpful for you. I would say there is a, a general consensus that eating a, a certain way um, it, among, the expert, among the people that spend a lot of time just doing this, uh, eating a certain way is probably beneficial, right? So eating, let's say, a little bit of meat, lots of vegetables, a little bit of fruit. Um, Mediterranean and, diet, right? That's let's the say most... a version of Mediterranean diet, Mediterranean slash Okinawan uh, diet. Yeah, so I think most people say, yeah, if you eat a, abundant levels of this, uh, you're probably going to have a good weight and you're going to be uh, healthy. Uh, yet, I would say that... Um, it's not really uh, implemented out there. Yeah, the compliance, I think, is a real is a real problem. So, you know, say you have someone who does eat their bagel every morning, cream cheese, the whole thing, um, and you know, it's, Dr. Steve has told them over and over again, "Look, this isn't going to be good for you. You are, you know, on your way to being diabetic um, if you don't uh, change your ways." But the patient's like, "Yep, yeah, sorry, this is what I like. I'm going to keep doing it." If they did something like um, the fast-mimicking diet a couple times a year, can that still change things for them? Can that prevent them from getting to, you know, like crossing that line into type 2? In the trial, uh, certainly suggests that the, most of the pre-diabetic move back to, to the normal state of three, three cycles. Um, now we have, I think, three trials on diabetes uh, ongoing. Uh, we're going to start one with uh, 450 patients, multi-center. So, yeah, we'll see. I mean, um, the um, the question is, um, can they do it? How many cycles can they do it? Can they do it for years and years and years versus, you know, I do it three times and then never do it again? Um, so we'll have to see. Uh, but I think that, um, first of all, you need to have the doctors uh, and the dietitians all on the same page and all sort of singing the same tune. Uh, then the patients, yes, a lot of them will not do it no matter what. But I think a lot of them, if they hear the same story from everybody, uh, then that could be a different, uh, a different result. You, you had mentioned that we, we may have been used to fasting uh, all winter long, essentially starving ourselves because there wasn't much food around. How do we actually decide that a five-day concept could mimic that? Well, first of all, five days is for, for people that are, that are normal, that don't have any uh, diagnosed disease. Um, it's a compromise uh, on safety and also efficacy and also compliance. So the idea was if you go on a fast, you're going to suffer for the first two days or so. Right. That's that's especially the first time, but also the subsequent times. So if you let's say did two days or two and a half days and stop, then it's all it's all very hard. Uh, then the fourth, they say third, fourth and fifth day are really days where it's pretty easy uh, because the body now tells you you're okay. You don't need to eat. Um, I mean, most people, like the great majority of people. 
Uh, so now you take advantage of these three days. Uh, you could go longer. And for example, we autoimmunities, uh, we're going longer, but we feel that it's not worth the risk um, of pushing people in that direction. We rather stop at a five and also five, it's initial compliance. You know, people can start on a Sunday and finish it on, on a Friday. Uh, and it's much more... And uh, really go hit the weekend, right? And Exactly. Um, but but, but you it know, is a little the, counterintuitive. The notion that you're going to be on a healthy diet day in and day out, and every once in a while you're going to go off your diet and, and splurge, I think in, in, intuitively you say, okay, that sounds like a reasonable, healthy way to be. The notion that all you have to do is really fast and go through this ketogenic process for five days, three, four times a year, and that that would give you a similar benefit to eating. Uh, yeah, okay. I, I want you to do both. In fact, my book is split 50-50 between eat well every day and then do the fasting-making diet. I, I, also okay. say, I also say the worse you eat, the more, the more gain, weight you gain, the unhealthier you become, the more you're going to have to do the fasting-making diet. And part of, part of the difference... Uh, I think when I was reading your book uh, is that with the, you know, when you starve your body a little bit, that's where you really get the longevity into play. The other interesting thing about the, this vegan, these five vegan days is most people, uh, no matter how bad their diet is, in fact, the worse the diet is, the more they, um, they use it as a, a little bit of a lesson or also a mind-opening moment, right? So they'll come back and say, you know, I, I didn't think I could eat a vegan, low-calorie diet or fast, and now I did it, and I felt very well. And so now I went back, and I don't feel like I need to have all those steaks and all that. So, you know, the effect is the opposite of what people will expect. So people are not saying, oh, now I do the fasting-making diet, so let me just go out and eat gelato, you know, seven times a week. They tend to do the opposite. They tend to say, you know what? I don't feel like, I mean, I, I, I eat all kinds of things, um, but I, I am more drawn towards this healthier lifestyle. Right. The psychological uh, yeah. concept of being so restrictive is, sounds like a turnoff, but when they actually do it and they realize that they feel better, that they see a, a new way uh, of perhaps living. And, and it wouldn't be that different from, let's say, running a 10K, right? So uh, people that never ran, you run a 10 kilometer. Uh, you're going to feel terrible and, and, and you're going to struggle and the first time is hell. And then most people will say, but you know what? I felt pretty good. You know, when I was running, I felt good. And even though I struggled, then I, after that, I felt even better. I was wondering earlier, is there any association with exercise that's part of the longevity research you've been doing? Or is it just diet? No, no. I mean, uh, exercise is, is very important. In the book, in the first book I, I wrote, I, I, I dedicated one chapter to exercise, you know, to 150 minutes a week of exercise. That seems to be uh, very positive and very effective in reducing mortality risk. So how do you feel about the artificial probiotics, the ones you buy in the store, refrigerator, and uh, are, do, are any of them, uh, do they work? Well, they can, I mean, um, uh, they can work, they can help, um, but um, I think that um, they're a quick fix. When we combine the, fa the fasting-making diet 
um, containing lots of prebiotic ingredients, so the, the, the fibers in the vegetables that feed the lactobacillus, the bifidobacteria, all these positive uh, bacteria species, that was really key uh, in protecting the mice against uh, this inflammatory bowel disease. There is a lot of clinical data now suggesting that if you give probiotic to somebody that um, has inflammatory bowel disease, this can reduce the symptoms. So I think we need more data. Uh, but, but I think for normal people, the best way to go is with uh, the vegetable containing the food for the good bacteria. In this country, so many people live almost exclusively on processed foods. Most of America eats a bunch of highly processed, spiced, uh, sometimes frozen foods. Is any of that uh, a problem, or do you not recommend that either? Well, first of all, I would not put frozen with processed. Uh, uh, for example, if you have organic uh, vegetables that have been frozen at the source, it's perfect food. I mean, it's about as good as it gets. Um, now, if you look at processed uh, meats, that's over and over and over it comes up on top as the best, about the, the most unhealthy food that you can that you can possibly think of, and uh, also because they um, we always hear that you know socioeconomic status it makes it difficult to afford uh, the fresh, and I, I'm always a little bit concerned that we don't say it doesn't need to be fresh. I mean, it could be frozen, and. Uh, and you now can get uh, very high-quality, even organic food that has been frozen for a fairly low amount. Uh, they can feed uh, a family uh, for a few dollars. So I think, yeah, that, that, that's the kind of thing we also need to start telling patients, you know, having solutions that, uh, because I understand how difficult it may be for lots of people to, you know, go to the grocery store every day and buying all the... Um, and all the uh, vegetables that are needed to, to make uh, fresh food. And so, yeah, uh, I think it's good to think of alternatives like that. Well, before we let you go, I have to ask you a somewhat more political question, if I may. Uh, so you've seen how different healthcare systems work. Tell us about your perspective on the American healthcare system. Is there someone who's doing it right compared to the U.S.? Uh, what have you learned from your vantage point? But for sure, um, the U.S. is the system is unsustainable. Uh, it's too expensive, and uh, but that doesn't mean that it, it's a bad system. I think it's just too expensive. Um, you know, what if you run out of uh, your insurance, and um, and is it sustainable to have treatments for for cancer or, or many other diseases that are in the you know fifty hundred thousand dollars a year per patient? And I, I, know, I think we already know the answer is not sustainable. So, so this is why I think the nutrition, I, I think most people will agree uh, and are agreeing already. That's the way to go in the future together, complementing the standard of care, but trying to reduce the burden. And prevention is always cheaper than the cure. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, so it's definitely doable, uh, but it's not going to be uh, done this way. So it's going to be done with medical schools having a very different agenda. For example, I say medical school, first and last course should be about healthy longevity. It's not about, you know, can you get somebody out of your office and, and be treated for a week or two? It's like, well, how do I get you to 100 or 110 healthy? 
And I don't think, you know, almost any medical school has this view of, of, of their mission. It may be uh, starting, but certainly in my yeah. day, there, was, there were no courses on prevention. I mean, with the exception of vaccines and, and preventative health that way. But in terms of true prevention of cardiovascular disease, prevention of cancer, I mean, because what can you do other than, well, don't smoke? Uh, and then certainly, you know, exercise is, is an important thing. Yeah, but, but, but I would, now I'm... getting down to what you do in, in terms of the detail work, in terms of the importance of nutrition and the specifics of nutrition, I, th- I think it's, it's starting a, really a new era. Dr. Longo, I want to thank you for joining us. This was really a spectacular learning experience for me. And, of course, Steve and Janice, thanks so much, and I look forward to doing this again. Will you come back and visit us? I think we've only touched on some of the wisdom that you could pass on to us. Sure, sure. Thank you for having me. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in to Medicine. We're still practicing. Have a good day. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends. And let us know how we're doing by leaving a comment. It really helps if you give us a five-star rating, and we really appreciate it. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This episode was produced and edited by Mike Thomas, audio engineering by Michael Kennedy, and the theme music was composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Thanks for listening. From Kirkco Media, media for your mind.